Jesus Christ. He has been resurrected by this point. John is on this isle called Patmos, which is about 60 miles away from Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And at this time, here's what you have to understand about this particular place. It was one of the most incredible cities at this particular time within the Roman Empire. It was this place that in many ways was called, and I didn't even realize it until this week when I started kind of prepping again, it was called the Light of Asia. You know if you get called the Light of Asia, you're something big. It wasn't the capital at that particular time, but it had at this moment the greatest harbor in all of the area in which it lived, and so it traded with cities like Corinth, which were over in Greece. But that that place in which now that, that it was... It wasn't only this great harbor, but it was where four major highways intersected, so it was full of trade. And they even called it another name for it, the Market of Asia. It was an amazing city. It was a free city, meaning they had self-governance, which meant there was no Roman soldiers that would come into this particular city and, and squash anything. It had what was called the Ephesian Games, which rivaled the games in Corinth and the great games in Olympus. People would come from around the kind of that particular area, bring their best athletes to what was going on at that particular time. But probably the thing that sticks out the most, which we got to really kind of understand today, is it had one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. And this thing was amazing. In fact, one particular guy said he'd travel and seen many of the seven wonders of the world, and he said that no wonder of the world rivaled this particular temple and how amazing it was. Like, just for a second, let me see if I can help you understand how big it was. From one end to the other on length, it was a football field and a half long. I think in that way, 450 feet if you think elsewhere. But I think, man, football field and a half long and almost a football field wide. It was huge. It had a roof that they said if you weighed it, the amount of tonnage that it put down upon the pillars that were around 130 of them would have been astronomical. In fact, they can't even begin to calculate how much that roof weighed, but that roof was held up by 130 pillars that were six stories high, and they're inlaid with gold and jewels. In other words, amazing. In the midst of all of this, it's the temple to Diana. In many ways, you had eunuchs there, and I won't go into what those were. They had prostitutes and priestesses, and there's music and dancing. It was just this place, when you came into it, it would have been a marvel. It had a museum in it. It held all these major pieces of art at the time. It had a bank in it. It had, in fact, one of the first known banks at the time inside of the temple. But what made it so funny about what it was, it was not only a bank, but it was a sanctuary for criminals. (laughs) See? But it was into this town, and this is why I'm just kind of giving the background of this amazing place, this place that was huge and full of life and crazy, that Paul showed up and he left this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, we find out in verse 18, and they started to preach the gospel. 
In this hub of the time, man, all of a sudden, as they begin to preach the gospel, different Jewish people first begin to know Jesus. In fact, not only was there Priscilla and Aquila, but this guy named Apollos that you find about later in the New Testament, he comes to know Jesus Christ in the midst of all of it. And then Paul shows up at this particular time. And as he's there for three years, he begins training all these different pastors, sending them out. Timothy, another guy, pastors there. Then a guy named Tychicus, he also pastored there. And lastly, what it is, it's John. He shows up in this city, but the church is just taken off like wildfire. It gets so crazy, and here's how it was born. If you, if you look at Acts 19 later, and I'll let you go there on, their own, on your own, this church began to be persecuted. This church had miracles in it. This church had false exorcism. There was riots. There were people that were being put in jail. But it says in Acts 19 that the word of the Lord was growing and mightily prevailing. It was, and this is the way I would just love to say it, from everything we understand, it was an amazing church. It had a rock star of group of people. It had Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Timothy and Tychicus and John. It had an amazing beginning. It was incredible. And by the time we come to it in Romans, we see this, that Jesus is going to be talking about it. He's even got more incredible things to say about it. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil, he says, but you've tested those who call themselves of their apostles and not and found to be false. That first word up there, that word toil, means you just exercise to the point of, of fatigue. You're exhausted. Imagine if you run a marathon and as you cross the line, there's nothing left in you. You're just done. And he's says not only that, but he said, you have patient endurance. You just stay in it. The way that I would kind of think about it is it's this church that when you put patient endurance together with this idea of toil, it's a church that is not afraid to work hard. It's a church that's not afraid to go to the end. It's a church that will do anything that it can to advance the gospel within their particular area in any way possible, any means that's afforded them. It's not the 80-20 world where you have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. It's flip-flop, man. This church is working hard. And not only is it working hard, but look at that. It tests those who call themselves apostles or false teachers. In other words, they had had guys like Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Tychicus and John. All these people that come and poured time into them. And each of them warned. You'll see this like in Acts 20. Man, be so careful of these false apostles. And because they knew God's word and the truth of it, they kept out any false teachers that were going to be amongst them. It was a great church. In fact, this is the way I would put it to you. If you were going to look for a church during this particular time, I think Ephesians, the Ephesus church would be the church you would probably want to go to, those of us that come from kind of conservative evangelicalism. It was a great church. Not only that, but we find out that they kept out this group called the Nicolaitans. We don't know a ton about them. But there were different churches letting in these particular people. And what they were known for was doing like crazy off-the-wall sensual-type pleasure stuff, right? So it's, they were like, no, we're going to keep that one out of the church. Probably doesn't belong. They were a church that worked hard. They kept evil out. They were amazing. But here's the thing I want every one of us to see in here. Because I think what's happened to the church over time, not only Cornerstone, but even just watching the church inside of the United States, 
Over the last two years, I've watched as we've just gotten angry. We want to fight. We want to go take somebody on. We want to we go do something about it. And so everybody's starting to get fired up, and we want everybody to be bold and out there and doing things. But here's the thing I want you to understand. You can go that way, and at the end of it, you could lose the most important thing, which is your love for Jesus Christ. This church did. See, this is why this is so important. Look what he says here. This I have against you. Now, on one level, this is why it's important we understand who's speaking here. Jesus Christ has been commending them, saying, you're a great church. These are all the incredible things you've done, man. You're, you are working hard. You're laboring. You're advancing the gospel. You're keeping out false teachers. There are so many things in which you are a great church. But it's one thing for me to come in and say to a church, you know, hey, this I have against you. It's kind of like when I was a kid. My, I don't know how many of you grew up, but I, I grew up old school. And I remember one time I, I taught my little brother about using the middle finger, which I should have never done. <laughs> little did I know the person that he would use it against was my mom. Oh, boy. I came home, and my mom's about 4'11", okay, so not a large woman, but she, we call her the little Napoleon because she don't play. And I came home, and there she was, just coming at me like crazy. Do you understand what that meant? Why did you tell your, you know, Josh, that I, I said, well, I just was telling him, if anybody makes you mad, you just do this. And she goes, do you understand? I was the first one to make him mad, and I'm trying to figure out how to get out of it. And after a while, I'm like, okay, cool, it's my mom. But then she said these words. Okay, I'm old school. Wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> Suddenly, you knew my mom was not playing. When she threw out the words, wait till your dad gets home, she wasn't playing. And this is what I think is so important here. Jesus Christ is now looking at them saying, okay, you've done all these phenomenal things, but this I have against you. Well, what is it? Verse four, you've abandoned your first love. Now, on one level, it'd be like, oh, okay, maybe it waned a little bit. Maybe it's, maybe it's just not as good as it should be. But this thought that's kind of being played out here in verse four is so important. See, on one level, you could do all these incredible things, but if you don't have a love for God, the point is, is kind of who cares? My wife and I just had our, our 27th wedding anniversary, and, and you know, 27 is a number you just don't care about anymore on some levels, but, but you know, I was, we were talking back and forth, you know, it's like, oh man, it's been 27 years, but I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine for our 27th anniversary, I come home, and as I come home, my wife is standing there at the door and she says, oh, wonderful, amazing husband you are. Welcome to your kingdom. Your children, the little princes and princesses have been delved off to friends and it's just you and I here alone tonight. I'm like, well, shut the door, girl, yes. She goes, not only that, but I also want you to know you will be able to watch ESPN from six o'clock until you decide to go to bed. You can watch every game, you can watch every single sports center that you want. Not only that, but while you're doing that, I'll be massaging your shoulders just to let you know you're so incredible. And not only that, I made your favorite meal. 
She pulls it out, and out comes a plate with a sizzling steak on it. You know that steak that when you cut it, it just cuts like butter, and you put it in your mouth, and you could just chew on it for days. Baked potato, sour cream, butter again. And she said, not only that, but when we're all done here, I've got your favorite dessert, brownies and ice cream. But then she looks at me and says this, I want to do all those things for you, but I don't love you. See how hollow that is? There's something that's happening there in that particular moment when Jesus is talking to them which is talking about us as the church, that yes, God does want us to do big things for him. He, he does want us to join him in what he's doing in the world. But there's something so powerful and special in this relationship that we have with God that it's incomplete unless we love one another. He's talking to us from that realm. He's like, I didn't just design you to do big things for me. I didn't just bring you into my kingdom so that you could go die and work hard and do all that other stuff. I brought you in to have a unique relationship with you that is love between the two of us. And I would say this, the moment that the church, any church in the United States, Cornerstone included, the moment that we forget that passionate love that God has called us to, we cease to in many ways be the church that God intends it to be. I even think in some ways people see the church right now so angry and so upset and so frustrated and so just wired because I do, I look across the board at the church, and again, not only Cornerstone, just across the United States right now, and I think we've just lost our passionate love for Jesus. Now, the, the, the love that I'm talking about, there's, there's sure there's those beginning love, which we're gonna talk about. When, like when I first met my wife, oh my gosh, I still remember looking across the room and going, oh my goodness, she's amazing. The more I got to know her, and then I said, I wanna marry you, I love you, but I didn't understand what love was at that particular point. I think Jesus is talking not just that Twitter-pated love, but that deep, deep love that gets built through time and being with somebody. I think this is what he was talking about when he came to like Jeremiah 2 and God is, is looking out over the people of Israel and he says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Oh my goodness, do I remember that. But I think he was saying to them in that particular moment, but you too, like this church in Ephesus, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And I think what it is, is it's just, it's a love that, that wanes. We don't mean for it to. My wife and I were talking about it coming home and, and, you know, in the kind of the midst of the trip. And I was saying to her like, well, what, what is it for you? And she goes, I just don't mean to, but it's, I just, I, I, I kind of become dull. That was her word. I just feel like I become dull. I feel like that God becomes in maybe many ways distant. I, you know, and in all these different ways in which she was describing it. But I would say this, in 2022, the thing that I've not only started to pray for myself, but the thing that I've been praying for Cornerstone 
is that we would reignite our love and our passion for King Jesus. And we're gonna talk about what that means, but just I want us to get that. Before we forget why we do what we do, before we forget that why we send people around the world to join God, and we join with our global partners all over the, so, all over the place, before we, we get involved in seeking to share Jesus Christ and everything that, that is happening in Simi Valley, before we start working hard to advance different initiatives, before we start getting after this whole idea of discipleship and all the different aspects that we're trying to do, before we, we throw out their membership, it's just this simple reality that I'll throw out to you how is your love for Jesus? Like, just sit and think about it right now. Do you have that same zeal that you had when you first came to know Jesus? Remember that zeal? I still remember that day when I first came to know Christ because as soon as I got it, I just wanted all my friends that didn't know Jesus to know who Jesus was. I mean, I was going crazy sharing Christ with all of my friends. One of them accepted Christ, none of the rest did, but I didn't care. I was so excited. I remember a guy got me my first Bible because all I had was a King James version and I didn't understand many of those words. So a guy got me my new Bible and I remember just sitting down and I didn't know you were supposed to take your time reading through the Bible. And so within four months, I just read through the Bible. I came back and I'm like, what am I supposed to do now that I've read it? And the guy that discipled me goes, you read the whole thing? And I go, wasn't that what all Christians are supposed to do? And I mean, I was just so excited. I was annoying. Every Christian I found, I'm like, oh, you know, like I, I just wanted to learn more and more things about who Jesus was. Do you remember that? Because when we get to verse five, oops, let me go back there. That's one of the things he's gonna talk about. Is do you remember, therefore, from where you've, where you've fallen? I think right now, one of the best things that any of us could do, and this is gonna be the some of the practical takeaways from this particular message, is I want everybody to go home and I want you to start remembering those moments that where your invigorated love for Jesus just came to life. Remember those moments where you couldn't get enough of God's word, you couldn't get enough of God's people, where you, you saw the hand of God and what he was doing all around you, and just take time to just think through that and to be excited about it, because this is now what he's going to say. He says, I have this against you, but I love this, that the God of the universe doesn't just leave us there. He then comes in and says, no, look, I want you to understand how to do this, and the way that you need to reinvigorate it is to remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Remember it. Maybe you've never come to know Jesus Christ. And if you've never come to know Jesus Christ, and I would say today, my heart would be, as you sit in the midst of all of us that do know Jesus, that you will see a kindling and a passion and a love for Jesus that rises up, that beckons you and calls you in to know who this Jesus Christ is, why he came, why he died for your sin, why he rose from the grave, why he's right now with the Father, why the Holy Spirit came, and the fact that our King, according to Revelation, is coming back one day but he's coming back by the time you get to Revelation 22 to be with us see the whole goal is not just to go to heaven the whole goal is, is that we get to be with the God of the universe we get to be with him we get to know him. We get to find out more of who he is. And this is what I would say off of that remember is that we remember also this idea that our love with God is always in a state of growing. 
Every single phase of life, no matter what we go through, God is teaching us new facets of who he is and who we're called to be. And so that's why for me, every year I remind myself, oh yeah, what is this about? Who is this God again? And oh man, how is my love for that particular king? But it's not only remembering, it's also keeping in mind something. See, in John, and John saw this in the life of Peter, Peter has just denied Jesus three times. We know this. And after he's denied him three times, he, he's, he's kind of downbeat. In many ways, we know this. He was probably going back to just fishing for fish. And out of nowhere, Jesus kind of comes in at one moment while they're out fishing and they come back and Jesus has prepared a meal for them and they're enjoying being around Jesus again. And all of a sudden, Jesus has this moment with John. Now, if you remember right, all the way back to Revelation 1, remember this, John, or excuse me, with Peter, but John has fallen before the feet of Jesus. He's sitting before him, cowering, and here comes King Jesus to lay his hand on him, and he says, fear not. See, not only is Jesus the great all-consuming fire, he loves us. And I love what he does in John 21. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I love this, Simon, son of John, why'd you blow it? Can you imagine if he would have said that? He didn't say that. He says, do you love me more than these? I love that. Simon, do you, do you love me? Simon says back to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then we'll, we'll feed my lambs. And now you'd think probably Peter's like, okay, cool, I, I got you, Jesus. Verse 16, second time, Simon, son of John, why'd you blow it? No. Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, part of what I'm saying is, is I don't want people now to leave and to go, oh, come on, I need to stir something within me to love God. I, there must be something I'm supposed to do because listen to me. Love does not come from you. It comes from God. You don't have to leave here today and figure out how do I love him. You just need to leave here today and say, how do I know you? How do I just be with you? How do I see you? How do I spend time with you? And so this year, one of the things that I would highly encourage everyone to do, and I even put on my Facebook account and onto my Instagram account, I put a reading plan that if you haven't got a reading plan right now for reading through the Bible, I think one of the greatest ways to develop a love for God is to get into his word. Just go be with him. Go know him. Go know him in the ups and the downs of life. Go know him when, when things are going well and know him when things are falling apart. I think that's the joy of just finishing reading through the book of Psalms. I, when you read David and all the writers of it, they just were with God through every facet of life and their love for him just grew because they knew him. But it's not only that, verse five. I think there's this other side of it. I think we need to repent. Now, what do I mean by that? Because sometimes we think repent and we think it's a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. 
If right now you can say with me, like I have almost every year, okay, Father, you know, I I sense within my heart I don't love you like I should. I think what it is then to come to him and say, I'm going the wrong way. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge I don't love you like I should. And turn, this is the idea of repentance, and go the other way. And look what he says here. And do the works you did at first. In other words, rekindle that love. Rekindle knowing him, rekindle being with him. Find other people that know Jesus, man, and help, man, with one another. The book of uh, Hebrews talks about this, 10, 24, and 25. Kindle that love for, for God that you have amongst yourself as you, as you gather together. Be after it. Make it your point. I would say this. We need to make it our point as cornerstone to make the love of Jesus Christ from knowing him intimately the center of who we are. And I really do believe that once churches begin to take seriously just knowing God and loving God and being with God and making him known, the world can't deny it. This week, I, I ran into a guy, there was no doubt this dude loved Jesus. I went out for coffee and I see a guy over reading his Bible and I was kind of sitting next to him and I, I just go, ah, I noticed you're reading your Bible. And he, okay, and I'm not lying, this guy wasn't fake. He turned and looked at me and he goes, isn't it amazing? (laughs) I go, it is amazing. And he just started to share his life. You know those people that you pull off the top and out of them just comes a passion and love for Jesus. And he said something, he goes, oh, I'm getting proud. And he goes, oh, Father, just forgive me for being prideful. I'm like, dude, you're just gonna stop and talk to him right while we're talking, you know? And he was just this dude that just exuded Jesus. I think the church needs more of that. I don't think we need more angry people, frustrated and bitter at the government. I don't think we need more people ready to go protest and scream and yell in the streets. I think the greatest way in which we can tell the world the greatness of Jesus is to fall in love again and anew with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and make it our point this year to not let that go from the forefront of our mind and our thinking to set out that endeavor to know the God of the universe and in knowing the God of the universe to fall in love with him anew and afresh. And I think some of you right now sitting there, I think you deeply want it. You want to catch a vision of him. Those of you that are younger right now, as I look across this kind of room, man, don't settle for anything less. I know right now you're told at this particular time in your life, you know, to go, go seize it all, go get everything that, you know, is out there, go make the most of your world. The way to make the most of your world is not to go to make the most of your world. The way to make the most of your world is to know and to love the God of the universe. Make that the center of your mind and your heart and your affections. And then he says in there a statement, if not, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does that mean? I don't think God wants churches that don't love him. I think the churches that flourish and grow are those ones that are passionate for him. I think there's something that happens to churches that the moment that we forget why we're doing what we're doing and we just work hard and we go through the motions and we do everything and we keep out all the bad people, but yet at the end of it, we don't love Jesus. 
Jesus just says, I'll take away that lampstand. In other words, I want churches that are passionate for me. And why do we do it? I love verse seven. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. To the one who, 1 John 5, 4 through 5, the one who believes, the one that, that sees Jesus for who he's supposed to be seen as, the one that, that pursues after him to know him, to see the greatness of who he is, I'm going to grant thee the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, man, you will enjoy me forever.